Good morning, everyone. I want to endorse the Happy New Year that the Secretary has wished everybody. And can I just say, on behalf of my wife and myself, and I don't often speak for both of us, <laughs> but I want to say thank you for the way we've been made welcome and uh, how pleased we are to be a part of your fellowship. And now we come to prayer. Let's pray together. Everlasting God, we've come together at the start of another year to worship you and to thank you for all that you have meant to us in the past and to claim your promise for our future days. We come remembering all you have done over the past 12 months, the way you have guided and taught us as individuals and as a fellowship the time you've offered to us your strength and support. And we're conscious too of the, those occasions when you have specially surrounded us with your love and compassion. For all you have given us, receive our praise. We come anticipating the year 2010, knowing that you will be watching over us through it, constantly working your purpose in our lives, looking to lead us to a deeper understanding of your love. For all your promises, receive our praise. Touch our hearts now as we join together in worship, as we make time to dedicate ourselves again to one another, to you, and to your kingdom. For all you ask of us, receive our praise. Strengthen us, inspire us, equip us, and lead us forward in your service in the name of Christ. For all you do through him, receive our praise. And hear us now as we continue to pray and as we say together the Lord's Prayer. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. now our prayers of intercession. Let's pray together. Gracious God, as we come into your house at this time of new beginnings, we are reminded of those who feel the future holds no promise. Thinking of those who struggle with burdens to which they can see no solution. And so we ask you, reach out in love and grant a new beginning. We pray for those who face pressures in their home life, where relationships are strained between husband and wife, parent and child, brother and sister, and where patience is stretched beyond breaking point. We ask you, reach out in love and grant a new beginning. We pray for those who face pressures at work, sometimes overwhelmed by responsibilities, or caught up in office politics, or troubled by job insecurity, or simply bored and unhappy 
by what they do as a mere routine day by day. Reach out to them in love and grant them a new beginning. Father, we pray for the many folks in these difficult days who face pressures from money worries. Those who struggle to make ends meet, who are crippled by debt and frustrated by poor pay, or even uncertain where their next paycheck will come, when their next paycheck will come, reach out in love and grant a new beginning. We remember the many in our society who suffer from pressures from their health, who wait for diagnoses, who are crushed by depression, who wrestle with infirmity as the years go by, or those who live with the knowledge of a terminal illness. Reach out to them in love and grant a new beginning. And Father, in your house this morning we come and we pray too for those who face pressures from their faith, those who are racked by doubt, troubled by questions, who feel themselves cut off from your love, who endure the dark night of the soul. Reach out to them in love, we pray, and grant a new beginning. Gracious God, may your love, compassion, strength and support reach out to all who are hurting, and may you bring to them a new sense of hope the solid conviction that however bleak things may seem, you hold the future in your hands, now and for all eternity. And so again we ask for all these classes and conditions of humanity that you reach out in love and grant a new beginning through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Our scripture reading is from Revelation chapter 21, verses 1 to 13, and can be found on page 329 of the Pew Bible. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. The first heaven and the first earth disappeared, and the sea vanished. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared and ready like a bride dressed to meet her husband. I heard a loud voice speaking from the throne. Now God's home is with human beings. He will live with them and they shall be his people. God himself will be with them and he will be their God. He will wipe away all tears from their eyes. There will be no more death no more grief or crying or pain. The old things have disappeared. Then the one who sits on the throne said, And now I make all things new. He also said to me, Write this, because these words are true and can be trusted. And he said, It is done. I am the first and the last, the beginning and the end. To anyone who is thirsty, I will give the right to drink from the spring of the water of life without paying for it. Those who win the victory will receive this from me. I will be their God, and they will be my children. But cowards, traitors, 
perverts, murderers, the immoral, those who practice magic, those who worship idols and all liars. The place for them is the lake burning with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. One of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues came to me and said, Come and I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. The Spirit took control of me, and the angel carried me to the top of a very high mountain. He showed me Jerusalem, the holy city, coming down out of heaven from God and shining with the glory of God. The city shone like a precious stone, like a jasper clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with twelve gates and with twelve angels in charge of the gates. On the gates were written the names of the twelve tribes of the people of Israel. There were three gates on each side, three on the east, three on the south, three on the north, and three on the west. The city's wall was built on twelve foundation stones, on which were written the names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. Amen. Whenever New Year comes round and I'm preaching, and I have been since 1972, every year it comes into my mind that uh, quotation that the late King George VI used in a broadcast. It begins like this, I said to the man who stood at the gate of the year, and around New Year time I start to see gates everywhere gate into the park, a gate up the path to the front door of the house, gate everywhere I go. When I picked up the Bible and thought about this service, yes, that's right, I saw gates. 
And I want to talk to you this morning for a brief moment or two, and I hope it will be brief and so do you. (laughs) But I want to talk about the 12 gates around the city, the new Jerusalem, which John saw in the vision he had. It said of that city it had a great high wall with 12 gates and there were three gates on the east and three gates on the south and three gates on the north and three gates on the west. One of the best known churches in the English speaking world is that of St. Martin in the field in the heart of London. It's forever associated with the tremendous ministry that the Reverend Dick Shepherd had there for years. But few people know that before Dick Shepherd went to that church, it was almost derelict. In fact, a great splendid building would sometimes have just 10 or 12 worshippers at an evening service. And yet it was a church of unrivaled possibilities. And when the call came to Shepherd to come and take on the work, he told the congregation at his induction service of a vision that he had when he was actually in the mud of France during the 1418 war. I stood on the west steps, he said, and saw what this church would be to the life of the people. There passed by him hundreds and hundreds of all sorts of people going up to the temple of the Lord with their difficulties and their sorrows and their trials. I saw all sorts of people in it all hours of the day and night. And I said to them as they passed, Where are you going? And they said only one thing. This is our home. This is where we're going to learn of the love of Jesus Christ. This is the altar of the Lord. Where all our peace lies. This is St. Martin's. Centuries before Dick Shepherd, the author of the book of the Revelation in equally grim circumstances, also had a vision. It was a vision of a city as it might be, the new Jerusalem, he called it, the holy Jerusalem descending out of heaven from God. And in the reading we had this morning, we caught some of its features. John says it's a city in which there will be no church, for all life will be sanctified, all work will be worship, and the presence of the Lord will fill all things. It reminds you of the vision that the prophet Zechariah saw. On that day, holy to the Lord will be inscribed on the bells of the horses and the cooking pots and the Lord's house will be like sacred bowls in front of the altar. Yes, every pot in Jerusalem and Judah shall be holiness unto the Lord of hosts. The city will be surrounded by walls, walls which are garnished with all manner of precious stones, They're not just walls, you see, they're things of glory. 
And in those shining walls there will be twelve gates, gates that are never closed. They will remain open day and night, and they'll face in the, the, all four directions of the compass, three towards the east, three towards the north, three towards the south, three towards the west. Of course, it's a picture of an ideal city. But it's also a picture of an ideal church, a place fragrant with the presence of God, a place where the gates never shut but ever stand open, open to every direction from which pilgrims may approach it. And it's off those twelve gates, ever open on the four sides of the city, that I want to dwell on for a few moments now. These gates surely symbolize the all-inclusiveness of the Christian church. They insist that in a Christian fellowship there must be room for all. And then too they tell us there's not just one way into the church, but there's a gate to fit everyone's need, a path to fit everyone's feet. But the entrances into the church are as varied as human temperament and experience. Now this is a truth which often is overlooked in our churches. All who've gone through a profound religious experience are inclined to think that their experience should be the norm for every other person who comes to join the church. We think that the gate through which we came should be the way that everyone came. But we're all made differently, and we're all at different stages in our experience of life. Consequently, the gates through which we enter will be very diverse. Let us then always practice a very large tolerance. But now, for the gates themselves. The first gate to be mentioned is the east gate. On the east, three gates. Now, who is it that appears from the east? These are, the, these are those who come with the sun just rising on their lives. Boys and girls, young men and women, at the beginning of life's journey with all the zest and enthusiasm of youth. Now what do they want from religion? Not so much a saviour from their sins or a refuge from the storm. These things will come later. What the young people are looking for is a leader and a cause to which they can dedicate their lives. What Middleton Murray said they, what he wanted as a young fellow was something to surrender to. This is particularly true of modern young people. Someone who knew the mind of university students wrote that unlike those of a generation ago, today's students react against, are not reacting against the religion of their parents, for most of their parents had no religion at all. 
Rather, he said, today's young people are seeking for a faith and a cause that will bring meaning to life. And what faith or cause can compete with what the Christian church has to offer to young people? Where else can they go for a crusade which can remotely compare with this? What charter is there possessed by some other society that surpasses this? This of the cross and the resurrection of Christ and the hope of the kingdom of God. Where is there a fellowship so widely sprung among the nations than the church of the risen Christ? Where is there anything to compare like the role of saints and heroes? And yet the tragedy is that so often youth sees the church as an ambulance rather than an army. It sees it as a refuge for the weary rather than an inspiration for the strong. But we must always remember Christianity began in the East geographically as well as in the East of man's pilgrimage with a young man who called other young men to follow and to build. Would that today the youth of our modern world could see the real Jesus, the young Prince of Glory. For he came that they might have life and have it more abundantly. And if they were to discover him, then they would know they had come to the end of a search for a faith and a cause. On the east, three gates. And then on the north, three gates. Well, we don't need in weather like this to ask ourselves what the north speaks of. Bitter winds, lowering skies, a land where the earth is hard, where struggle and toil are the order of the day. And all of us sooner or later face this harsh, bleak country of the north. And we know what it is to see cherished blooms being cut off by bitter frost, or to look out and see only a dark, heavy sky and snow everywhere covering the ground. Some of us may even be in a grim north country this morning. God forbid that we should think there is no strength for us except what's left of our own fast ebbing strength. Thomas Carlyle used to feel like that. One of his biographers said of Carlyle that he lived like a leer who never came in from the storm. Many of us know folk like that. The storm's all around them. They never think of going to church, never seem to realize there are refuges from the storm and that there are gates from the city facing the north country and these gates never close. Of course, Christianity does not promise a life free from the winds and the frost of the north. We know, for example, it's the north wind that makes the Viking. Viking, and that without struggle and stress and strain, none of us ever really develop. 
But what Christianity does offer is a resting place from the storm. A place the traveller can enter, relax, and be renewed for the battle. Thy world, O God, so fierce, and I so frail, yet though its arrows threaten oft to piece my fragile mail, cities of refuge rise where danger cease, sweet silences abound, and all is peace. During a very bad flu epidemic, a sister in a certain hospital had been working for a long time, 20 hours a day. And this sister turned to one of her nurses and she said, I'm all in. I must see a nerve specialist or... And then without realising it, she said, or go to church. She hadn't been to church for years. And impelled by this strange experience that she'd given way to, she went to church and she found peace and strength that she never imagined she would discover. She returned to the hospital to have the best sleep she'd had for months and she was able the next day to be on the ward in charge, a completely new creature. Many today would never need consultations with specialists if only they'd found the peace and the calm and the strength and the reassurance we find in a fellowship like this. We were never meant to live this life in our own unaided strength. God sets up cities of refuge. There are gates that face the bitter, cold north country. And on the south, three gates. The south, which speaks to us of calm seas and blue skies, of good fortune and prosperity. So often those in the south feel they have no need of church or religion. All is well with them. They have health and friends and money and security. And so they've dropped prayer and worship. And they've been engulfed in materialism, money-making and pleasure-seeking. Or as the Bible says it so simply, they lose their soul. It's so often the case that when the south winds begin to blow softly, that people begin to deteriorate. Experience would show that human nature gives the best account of itself when it's fighting against the odds. And the poorest when circumstances are easiest. It was not out of the easy, prosperous days of King Solomon that the greatest Jewish writing came. No, that came from the harsh times they spent in Babylon. It was in the day of success, as Macbeth told his wife, that his tempters met him. You see, the South Country is the perilous country for the soul. It can so easily coarsen and harden and inflate. A man needs always to be on the watch when he has a full cup in his hands. Constantly he needs to take that cup, lay it on the altar, rehallow it, and then rededicate himself.
We are inclined to think, aren't we, that it's the weak who need religion. The strong, prosperous, successful man needs it just as much. For as Van Hugel said, they need it to moderate them, to water them down, to make them possible. In an account of a tour in the United States, Dr. George McLeod tells how at last he came to California. California, hardly a hint of cold, even in February, with the peach and the apple blossom breaking out in the orchards, with the average family in income adequate for every, dem every demand that even Americans could make on it, it seemed to MacLeod at first to be a taste of heaven. So he said to his host, It all seems so sane and final here. Sane, said his host. Do you know there are more fancy religions in California than in all the other states put together? Do you know there are more psychiatrists practicing here than in any other corner of the continent? The Southland can easily become a wasteland, devoid of meaning and significance. Man is made for more than an abundance of material things and labor-saving devices. He's made for God, and it's only as he seeks to know him and make his life an instrument of the divine purpose that he can find abiding peace. And lastly, on the west wall, there are three gates there. It's in the west that the sun sets and the shadows lengthen. And there are folks getting near the west gate. And life for them can often seem so strangely lonely. But it would not feel lonely or empty if only they could see more clearly the gates that lead into the city and who it is who's gone ahead to prepare the place for them. Not long before Dr. Dale of Birmingham died, he was seized by a great fear of death and much pain. Then he tells how the master came near and spoke to him. Don't let your heart be troubled. In my father's house there are many rooms. I go to prepare a place for you. This, said Dale, steadied me. I felt strong and safe in the love of Christ. And you remember, at the, towards the end of the second part of Pilgrim's Progress, how Mr. Ready to Halt got to the river? The last words he was heard to say were, Welcome life, and he went on his way. On the west, three gates. Gates that lead to light and life and warmth. The gates that lead into the Christian's eternal rest. What a gospel is ours. What a saviour we have. What a church to belong to. The Spirit and the Bride say come, and let him who hears say come, and let him who is thirsty come, 
and whoever will let him come and take of the water of life freely. Amen. May God bless his word.